0: Marital infidelity, child abuse, sexual misconduct, bullying, intimidation, abusive behavior, divorce, sexual abuse, nepotism, plagiarism. These are all the behaviors that we typically think and expect of non Christians, right? What if I told you that all the behaviors and vices that I listed above were practiced by those who held, and even some of them still hold, key leadership positions in the evangelical church today? What if I told you that all the behaviors and vices that I listed above were practiced and perpetuated by specific pastors, disqualified, and otherwise? I'm not going to list who did what or name names. I've had to learn that the hard way. But there were very specific people that I had in mind as I was listing out each specific scandal and vice. You see, I think for many of us, it's not surprising to hear scandal and moral failure from those in secular leadership. Like are we, are we really surprised that you know people like Billy McFarland or Elizabeth Holmes are frauds, some of you guys don't even know who they are. Uh, B- Billy McFarland just looks like a bro. Uh, not to be mean, but the Kardashians are, are walking scandals. But some of us don't expect scandal and moral failure from those within the church, I think. But before we get on our high horse, according to the Apostle Paul, sometimes the behavior of Christians is even worse than non-Christians. But to hear scandal and moral failure from within the church isn't only surprising. For some of us, it might even be disheartening. Because when you see the the same sins that you thought were only practiced by non-Christians, repeated by those in the church... It makes you wonder if being a Christian even makes, even means anything at all. If being a Christian even makes a difference in anyone's life at all. Which might make some of you wonder, why am I, why am I spotlighting the church's failures and airing out its dirty laundry? Why sow seeds of discouragement and pessimism as I step down from pastoral ministry? Why was this message one of the last messages that I wanted you guys to hear? First, it's because knowing the church's own failures inoculates us from any self-righteousness that we might be tempted to wag our fingers with. Knowing the church's own failures reminds us of our own failures. I mean, what immunity do we have from failure just because we come from good families or we go to a good church? And secondly, it's because scripture itself, God's very own words, don't shy away actually from critiquing God's very own people. If Scripture tried to actually intentionally try to shy away from it, it does a lousy job of it. One might even say that Scripture has a PR problem. Scripture does not shy away from betrayal, deception, and failure among the people of God. It tends to highlight the failures of God's people more, actually, if if you think about it, more than it does the failures of those outside God's covenant. God does not shy away from spotlighting the failures of his people because God loves us too much not to. Because if if sin puts us on the path of death, then God will routinely spotlight the severity of sin by spotlighting the failures of his people to remind us. It's as if God is reminding us that the church is not a perfect group of people. The church will fail you. And I know that many of you know firsthand that the church will fail you, maybe from your, your parents, maybe even from me, or even this youth ministry, that the church is not perfect. And I hope we never pretended that we were. I hope that we've been brutally honest about our own personal struggles and failures. But as much as the church is compromised and also comprised of a bunch of failures, God also discourages us from merely looking at the church in third person, but to also look at the church in second and in first it isn't just they or, or you, but really we. We are also those very same failures. As much as the church will fail you and disappoint you, you will also fail and disappoint the church. Failure is always latent and possible in every single one of us. Fallenness is, is woven into the fabric of our DNA. It is simply in our DNA to miss the mark. That is actually the word for sin in Greek, hamartia, it's to miss the mark. And so tonight we come across a pretty scandalous passage. It is not a bright moment for the church. And the lesson of the early church is that not even your relative proximity to Jesus makes you immune to scandal. Again, the early church, this was just 50, 40 years maybe removed from the life of Jesus himself. And this is what the late, the late pastor Eugene Peterson writes. He says, no church ever existed In a pure state, the church is made up of sinners. The fleas come with the dog. And so what do we do with scandal when we hear about it in the church? And what do we also do with scandal in our own hearts? And this is the Apostle Paul's answer to those questions. And so that's the key idea for our passage this morning. Our key idea is that we process scandal by holding each other accountable to the way of Jesus and by living in the way of Jesus ourselves. We'll take that into two parts. The first part is we hold each other accountable to the way of Jesus. Now, since we're dropping into the middle of 1 Corinthians, here's some context. The Corinthian church was an incredibly gifted church. It might have been even the most gifted church that the Apostle Paul planted, but it might have also been the most problematic church that he planted as well. It was a church that was divided divided. It was a church that was scandalized. And so something that to remember is that 1 Corinthians is a letter written by a real person who who happened to be the Apostle Paul. Written to a group of people who happened to be the first group of Christians in in 1st century Corinth. We are not the original recipients of this letter. And because we aren't, we are reading someone else's mail and airing out someone else's dirty laundry. But again, this was also recorded for our instruction. It isn't just they or them, but really us. And so when the Apostle Paul spotlights the sins and errors of the Corinthian church by the inspiration of the spirits, he is also spotlighting our own sins and errors as well. And so what are they? Take a look at verse one. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated, even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. I mean, this is wild. The Apostle Paul heard that someone in the Corinthian church was sleeping with his stepmom. Paul tells us that this kind of relationship isn't even tolerated by pagans. Not even non-Christians do this. Now what's interesting here is that the word that Paul, that, that Paul uses for pagans is the, word, is the word "ethnos," which is normally translated Gentiles. And so if we were to translate this verse, it would literally say, "In fact, I heard that there is sexual immorality among you." and a sexual immorality of such a kind that is not even practiced by Gentiles. But here's the thing. The Corinthian Christians are ethnically Gentiles. They're not Jews. In other words, Paul is saying that their Christian identity supersedes their ethnic identity, which is what makes the sin of this man even worse. His actions and behavior did not come in alignment with nor reflected his identity within Jesus Christ. And what's worse is that he was doing something that even non-Christians didn't approve of and would be stumbled by. Back in uh, chapter 1, verse 23, a few chapters earlier, you don't need to turn there, the Apostle Paul writes that if Jews and Greeks are to be stumbled by anything, let the stumbling block be the cross of Jesus Christ and nothing else. One commentator points out that because of the cross, first century Gentiles... We're already prone to believing the worst about Christians. But I think that in our modern era, I don't think the cross is the stumbling block. I think the stumbling block to Jesus isn't actually Jesus himself, but really, I think his followers. It's Christians. It's Christians who claim to follow Jesus, but whose lives are not consistent with their profession of faith. You know why people have such disdain for Christians? It isn't because of Jesus, but really, I think because of his followers. It's their hypocrisy, their lovelessness. They look nothing like Jesus. If your non-Christian friends knew that you were doing something that not even they did, not even they tolerated, aren't we giving them even more reasons to doubt the saving and redemptive power of God in our lives and the redeeming and transformative power to change the lives of others? Are we giving reasons, fuel, ammo for our non-Christian family friends and relatives to to doubt the sincerity of our faith and the power of the cross. Maybe it isn't so much the kinds of things that even non-Christians, non-Christian friends or family wouldn't do, but more the kinds of things that surprise them. Is there something or anything in our lives that would prompt your friends' eyebrows to raise? Like, oh, I didn't know that Christians did this, or I didn't know Christians said this, or maybe after a period of time, it's no longer the kinds of things that surprise them, but really the kinds of things that confirm your suspicions of Christians. Like, you know what? I knew Christians were just a bunch of hypocrites anyway. I knew all of you were like this. So let me ask you, what is your reputation as a Christian among your non-Christian friends? In my years of being a pastor, the most common reason that people tell me for for refusing to commit their lives to Jesus is the inconsistency of a Christian's belief and a Christian's conduct. It is one of the most common reasons why people leave the church and one of the most common reasons why people will never step inside a church ever again if they ever have. You know, an alarming trend that I have been, uh, I've been seeing among people around my age is this phenomenon called deconstruction or deconversion, where people are more or less abandoning the faith, the Christian faith. And one of the biggest catalysts for this abandonment is that people are tired of hearing about the hypocrisy of the church. People are just tired of hearing about scandal after scandal from the church. Eugene Peterson writes again, there are always some and often many who live as parasites on these vigorous truths and fatten on the red blood of redemption. Outsiders often see nothing but these parasite persons and suppose that they are characteristic of the church, but they are not any more than barnacles are the hull of a ship which is why I'm so thankful for the cross of Jesus Christ. Because the ultimate proof of the power and love of God, thank God, isn't actually Christians, but really Jesus himself. The perfect God-man, the God who stepped down in our place, going to the cross, dying for our failures, taking upon himself the wrath, his own wrath, upon himself. And he even now is in the process of making us new. The brokenness and weakness and even failures of Christians exist to show that the surpassing power does not belong to us, but really to God. But our brokenness, I think, it ought to at least, make us more self-critical, not not more self-righteous. The basic posture of a Christian in the world should be one of humble melancholy. An acceptance of our card-carrying membership in what Francis Spufford calls the church the league of the guilty. That's who we are. We first see the evil in ourselves and only then lament the evil in the world around us. But the most startling point of Paul's response isn't that he condemns the guy who is sleeping with his stepmom. The startling thing actually is he scolds something else in addition to the guy. Take a look at verse 2. And you... Are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now it makes sense for the Apostle Paul to point the finger at the man sleeping with his stepmom, but it's surprising where he also points his finger toward as well, right? He only he also points the finger at the church. He's saying, You are arrogant. The Apostle Paul says that the failure of the family God, family of God. To discipline or remove him from fellowship makes them just as guilty as the man sleeping with his stepmom. Which reminds us and tells us something about Christianity. Christianity. In Christianity, there's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the church is described of not only as a family, but as a body where one body part affects the other. What happens to one family member affects the whole family. Individual members of the body are called to take active responsibility for one another's lives and spiritual vitality. What does this mean? It means that when one person, when one person sins, for example, in this youth group, in this high school group, it is never just an isolated incident. Sin has corporate consequences. It has ripple effects and consequences that will also affect everyone else in the family. When we see a family member in this youth ministry doing something wrong, we actually become complicit in some ways with their wrongdoing if we don't do something about it. Everyone else is just as guilty for doing nothing about it, at least according to what the Apostle Paul says in in verse 2. What this also tells us is that we are our brother's and sister's keeper. You know, if we go back to the list of behaviors and sins that I had listed at the start of our message, which led to the disqualification of so many pastors and leaders, there's actually one big fat common denominator, I think, that runs the, that, that you can trace throughout all the different vices perpetuated by evangelical leaders. That one big fat common denominator was that they lacked accountability. They all lacked accountability. All the different stories that I've heard about so-and-so pastor, this other pastor, was that they lacked accountability. Almost none of these leaders allow themselves to be held accountable by others. Many of these big-name pastors, Big Eva, I like to call it, or as, as Pastor Carl Truman likes to call it, were so, were so far removed from their local congregations and churches doing big conference stuff, which is why I'm not really a big fan of big conferences, that no one really knew what was going on in their interior life with God, in their life with their families. These pastors were so distant from people that actually knew them that they were able to actually create buffers that prevented people from actually knowing them. And so rather than putting up guardrails for their souls, they actually put up guardrails from being truly known and seen. Do you put up guardrails to prevent others from truly seeing you? Or do you put up guardrails for your soul? An immediate application is, do we have a healthy culture of accountability in our church, in our youth group? Do you you personally have healthy accountability? Do people know you? It's why we need to ask ourselves, do do my friends know me? It's the reason why Pastor Tim says it all the time. Do I invite people to know me? My struggles, my burdens. And do I know others? That's actually the other question that we need to ask ourselves. Do I know other people? Do I have the relational capital with others for them to share their struggles with me? But the Apostle Paul also diagnoses the reason why they, fail, why they failed to hold the man accountable. The answer lies in why the Apostle Paul says that they are arrogant. And so we have to ask the question, are they arrogant because of the sin or in spite of the sin. Like, are they full of praise that the sin was committed or that they were self-righteous that they weren't the ones who committed it? Like, thank God I'm not like this man who slept with his stepmom. And commentators believe that the reason why they were arrogant was most likely because they thought that they were better than the guy who was sleeping with his stepmom. Now, why does any of this even matter? It's because in thinking that they were better than this man, they ended up ignoring his sin. In thinking and in ignoring and in not addressing his sin, they stood in self-righteous condemnation and judgment over it. They distanced themselves from him. And I think that exposes our usual attitude toward the sins of others. When it comes to addressing sin, we do either one of two extreme things. Either we police sin or we ignore sin. A couple years ago, I can't believe we did this, uh, Megan and I allowed a couple of our friends to stay in a trailer in, our, in front of our house in our driveway. Uh, it was literally the most stressful thing that um, I had ever done in my life. Uh, we left them because uh, they needed to get some remodeling work done in their house. Uh, and because they were literally right outside our house, I, got a, I literally got a brief window into the family life of their two kids. Uh, it was literally a window. Um, I could, open, I could like literally open my blind and see their kids running around the, the trailer. And uh, one thing that I noticed about these two siblings is that the older brother loved tattling on his sister. He was constantly enforcing the rules and telling his parents whenever his little sister was doing something wrong and or when he or what he thought was right. And I think some of, for some of us, we're kind of like my friend's son. Uh, we're always just kind of on a sin hunt. Anytime someone does something wrong, we gossip about it to others. We tell people. We, we keep a mental ledger of all the wrongdoings. But on the other hand, Actually, for, probably, for most of us, tattling on others is not actually our default, I think. For most of us, if not all of us, our default isn't to actually police sin, which is a good thing, it's to actually ignore and tolerate it, it which is another extreme bad thing. Even when we know that someone is doing something wrong, because we, but because we like them, or we don't want to jeopardize our friendship with them, or we, we don't want to make the relationship awkward, we just don't tell them. We just say, hey, it's all good, we're not perfect, I'm not perfect, You know, we all make mistakes, I think one of the many strengths of making everything gospel-centered, it's kind of ironic that I say this because I just mentioned about how we need to be centered on the gospel last Friday, but one of the many strengths of making everything gospel-centered is also, I think, one of its greatest weaknesses. And here's what I mean by this. Before you misinterpret, I love the gospel, as you guys know. Um, I I absolutely believe that the good news of Jesus, of of, of the kingdom of God, is the power of God for salvation and transformation. I absolutely believe it. Just as we had talked about last Friday, and that God does not expect us to clean up our lives to be with him. My problem is not the gospel, but how we use the gospel to mask and justify what we want to do. A few years ago, the term gospel-centered was really hot. Like, I don't know, Lighthouse was using it everywhere. I literally saw that every gospel-centered counseling, gospel-centered friendships, gospel-centered coffee-making, whatever. Uh, in some ways, it still is, like, you know, gospel-centered trademark. Like, as a brand. Like, you know, like, we are gospel-centered. We are free in Christ. And we're recovering Pharisees and legalists. Rules are so archaic. But here's the problem. Christians, I think, good Christians, I think, rightly reject the excessive boundaries of legalism. Like, you know, you can't watch TV. Shouldn't dress this way or that way. You can't own a nice car. But in rejecting the excessive boundaries of legalism, what I think and what I've often noticed as a pastor is that this rejection never seems to manifest itself in a greater pursuit of holiness or goodness. It never seems to manifest itself in a greater pursuit of virtue, of wisdom, but really only in more rationalized dabbling in the dirtiness of the world. The theologian David Wells describes this dabbling as worldliness, a system of values that displaces God and his truth from the world and makes sin look normal and righteousness strange. At the end of the day, supposedly gospel centered Christians are just as worldly as non Christians, and all that gospel centeredness is, is really just a brand of Christianity. And evangelicals, again, love brands. But there's a deeper reason, I think, why we ignore and don't address the sins of others. It's because deep down, we just don't really care enough about them one commentator points out that the church most likely ignored this man's sin because of his higher social status and wealth to call this person out on his sin possibly jeopardized their own social status and financial state and standing if they actually called this guy out because if you know if this guy was a rich benefactor of the church they would be less inclined to call him out their failure to address This person's sin, in other words, was really motivated less by a love and concern for this man's soul, but really a love and concern for themselves. And so what about us? I think the problem for us isn't that we value friendships too much, because in not wanting to ruffle any feathers at all, in not wanting to make things awkward, in not wanting to jeopardize our friendships with others, we actually demonstrate how little we value their friendship. Because our greatest desire isn't really their, des- isn't their holiness or repentance, but really our own comfort and safety. How it makes us feel. Which is one of the reasons why the apostle Paul holds the Corinthian church responsible for this man's sin. Take a look at verses three to seven. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. And we can't get too much into the weeds of church discipline, which is what is actually happening here. The Apostle Paul is invoking church discipline, the same process that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 18. But the TLDR is that God holds the church accountable through the church. The means by which God holds the church accountable is through the very same means, the church. That's the reason why the church collectively has the authority Of Jesus. God cleans his own house through the church. Our bodies have an immune system that monitors and fights off infection, disease, and sickness. And in the same way, the church also has an immune system that monitors and fights off infection, disease, and sickness. Disease, uh, I'm sorry, discipline rather, and correction are the immune responses to a church battling Infection and disease. It's the reason why, if they don't, this man's sin will spread like a cancer and eventually corrupt and destroy the whole church. Now, how many of you guys have ever seen uh, mold grow in your uh, in your food in your refrigerator? I'm sure all of us have seen mold at some point in our lives. Um, Any of you like you know skim off the moldy parts and just keep the the non moldy parts? Um, Okay, I just I used to just cut off the moldy parts and uh, and not tell Megan. Uh, just kidding. Uh, she would hate it if I, if I actually did that. Uh, I, would, I, would, I would actually just throw it away. But if you don't remove the moldy stuff in your fridge, you will encourage the growth and spread of mold to the other food uh, in, in your fridge. As you all know, a little mold in your apple pie eventually causes the rest of the pie to grow moldy. It's the same with leaven, which is a kind of yeast. Yeast or leaven was a metaphor for sin. And so leaven, like mold or like a cancer, starts really small, and it spreads, infects, and kills from the inside out. The church, as we've been talking about, is a body, or in this case, a lump of dough. An unrepentant sin must be removed and expelled before it spreads to the rest of the body. That is the immune response of the church. And a church is unhealthy if the immune response doesn't do what it's supposed to do. But the reason for this extreme discipline isn't for this man's condemnation, but really and ultimately for his restoration. Take a look at verse 5 again. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Why? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Well, Paul is simply saying is that the hope after expelling the man from the Corinthian church, after being handed over to Satan, after being placed outside of God's protective and redemptive care in the church after being under the domain of the God of this world after correction and discipline, after seeing the futility of his sin and error, the hope is that he would be saved. In other words, God only disciplines to save people from their own destruction. That is the ultimate goal of discipline and correction. It is salvation and restoration and never condemnation or damnation. In the family of God, God invites you to come as you are, but never to stay as you are. It's the reason why Jesus came. It's the reason why Jesus became our Passover lamb. Take a look at verse seven and eight. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, why the Passover lamb? In Hebrews chapter thirteen, verses eleven to twelve, the author of Hebrews writes that just as a sacrifice for sin is burned outside the camp, Jesus, so also Jesus suffered outside the gates in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. Jesus, in other words, was purged out of the community for us. And so, in, so whereas we're supposed to expel the person outside of the church in sin, Jesus actually expelled out of the community for us. Jesus was taken outside of the camp for us. Jesus was cut from the life of God so that we would not be cut off from the life of God. That is the ultimate consequence, life apart from God. That is the danger of unconfessed and unrepentant sin, sin that has been unaddressed. It is life apart from God. Paul takes the responsibility of the church to deal with sin so seriously because God took it so seriously That he took the life of his own son for us. When our brothers and sisters aren't walking in the way of Jesus, we go after our brothers and sisters with sincerity and truth, to speak the truth in love, to make charitable and kind judgments with pure motives and clear consciences. We walk side by side with one another and hold each other accountable. And every time we hold someone accountable, to the way of Jesus, we are actually confessing the story of the cross, that there is restoration in the cross. That is what we are actually withholding from others when we do not hold other people accountable. We are letting people fester in their sin to enjoy life apart from God. That is what happens when we actually do not hold other people accountable. When we actually hold people accountable, We are confessing the story of the cross. And it is our responsibility to make sure that we keep each other on the right track following in the way of Jesus. Which brings us to our second point. Living in the way of Jesus ourselves. Living in the way of Jesus ourselves. Take a look finally at verses 9 to 10. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. Now, Paul is referring back to a um, a previous letter that he had written to the Corinthian church, and he wants to make a clarification that when he said not to associate with sexually immoral people, he did not mean those outside of the church, but really the clarification is those inside the church. Because the point is, Paul's point is, were, is that Christians are not to retreat, retreat from society, but to be missionaries to society. Have you ever wondered why God doesn't place churches underground, but instead on street corners, in communities, in neighborhoods, even urban centers? Have you ever wondered why God plops you right in the thick of friends, neighbors, classmates, loved ones, Relatives who know nothing about the gospel, whose lives are in rebellion against God, who are lost, who are sexually broken, who are arrogant. You want to know why? It's so that you can demonstrate to the world what it is like to be a part of God's family. What it means to be forgiven by God, what it means to forgive, what it means to love, what it means to be loved by God and by the church, to belong to the living God and the people whom He has ransomed by His own blood to live with a distinct character and mission, to be a countercultural cross-shaped community, to be a family where each member of the family is to take care of each other, to take an active responsibility for one another's lives, to allow our lives to be seen and to validate the message that we proclaim. That is the reason why Paul says not to associate with the sexual immoral, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, one commentator writes, the world is waiting to see such a world, uh, such a church rather, a church which takes sin seriously, which enjoys forgiveness fully, which in its time of gathering together combines joyful celebration with an awesome sense of God's immediacy and authority. Another commentator writes that such, community, such Christian community life, community life may be one of the most important prophetic messages we can give to the church. Paul, by no means at all, Paul does not call us to leave the world, but to stay in the world and to be light in the world. How? By first pointing the finger at ourselves. Take a look at verse 11. But now I am writing to you, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. In other words, who bears the name of Christian, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Who are the people that Paul is talking about here? He isn't talking about those who have sin in their lives in general, because we all do. He isn't talking about those who struggle with sin. He isn't talking about those who are broken over and mourn over their sin. He is talking about those who profess to be Christians and yet live in habitual unrepentant and, undef- and defiant sin against God and you know it's interesting to note that five of the six examples of sin in verse 11 that require community discipline have nothing to do with sex it's professing Christians who are consumed with wanting more stuff I mean that's greed it's professing Christians who have placed relationships grades sports the approval of others above God that is idolatry It's people who profess to be a Christian, go to church, read what the Bible says, and living in blatant disregard of it. And what Paul says is treat them like an unbeliever because you're not even to share the table of fellowship and communion with them. We are to give no indication that they are okay with God because they're not. And notice where the Apostle Paul points the finger. He doesn't point the finger outside the walls of the church he points it within. You see, I think, the, I think we think that the real danger is outside church walls, on our social media feeds, in our schools or in the music that we listen to. And sure, those are dangers, sure. But Paul reveals the, re- reveals the real insidious and deceitful danger, which is actually right under our noses. It isn't sin out there. It's really sin that has been undealt with, it is sin sitting right next to you and sin in your own heart. That's where it's really infectious and dangerous. Christians are world famous, or I should say notorious, for judging those outside the church. But look at what Paul says in verses 12 to 13. Really important. He says this, For what have I to do with judging, what? Outsiders. Outsiders. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. If you want to confront yourself, if you want to confront someone who calls themselves a Christian and they refuse to listen and you bring a few others, that's biblical for sure. But we have no business judging those outside the church. This means that as God's covenant people, as his family, it is our responsibility to, to preserve the purity and unity of the church, for sure. But it is not our responsibility to enforce and expect the same standards of obedience to non-Christians. Why? Because, again, Paul reminds us that God is the one who will judge the outsider. We are called to love outsiders, not judge outsiders. There will be judgment. For sure, to be sure, but the Apostle Peter even, in fact, reminds us that judgment judgment begins first, not in the world, but it begins in God's very own home. God cleans up his house before he cleans up the world. The only judgment that should be going on right now is the kind of judgment that happens among brothers and sisters where we hold each other accountable to following Jesus. God saves you to change you, and one of his means of doing so is through the people around you. To your brothers and sisters next to you. Just as the church's responsibility is to point the finger at themselves before pointing it at the world, it is also the individual Christian's response to point the finger at ourselves before pointing it at other brothers and sisters. It is the Lord of the church himself who said that we should worry about our own sins more than the sins of the world. One of the reasons why our words, I think, and maybe perhaps if you wonder why your words fall on deaf ears with people in general, one of the reasons why is perhaps because we simply haven't lived out what we are preaching to others. We are telling others to clean their own room before we've even cleaned up our own. And so what what credibility do we have As brothers and sisters, if we tell people to remove the speck out of their eyes while we've ignored the huge forest in our own faces, out of all people, Christians, the church is called to take the log out of its own eyes before it sticks its grubby and dirty fingers to pluck specks out of the eyes of others. Out of all people, Christians should be the first to admit fault and the last to condemn the faults of others. I mean, have we forgotten that one of the, that our sins are one of the main reasons Jesus was hung on the cross? And so before you speak truth into your brother or sister's life, you need to allow truth to change your life first, to permeate your life before you desire for that truth to permeate the life of others. And so are there any areas in your life that need to be addressed? Is there any genuine confession over the brokenness of your own sin? rather than the sins of others? And finally, as we seek to get the speck out of our sibling's eye, are we doing so with care? As we seek to fulfill the call for Jesus and for the the Apostle Paul to, to keep each other accountable, do you do it with care? With gentleness and genuine care for their soul rather than out of pettiness or spite? As the family of God, we are to seek the best, hope the best in others, to be transparent about our own sins and struggles, to be willing to receive instruction, encouragement, sometimes correction, accountability, to help those who need help, to speak the truth in love, and sometimes to call others to repentance. Your responsibility as a Christian is to be your brother's keeper, not the outsider's keeper. It is our our first responsibility to model God's countercultural standards before a watching world, rather than trying to impose those standards upon the world. The world is longing for a community that will deal with its own sin before it deals with the sins of the world. And so in the family of God, in this family right here, we hold one another accountable to a larger network of relationships between God and his people where the health of one another affects the health of all. We deal with scandal by holding each other accountable to the way of Jesus, and by living in the way of Jesus ourselves. Let's pray together. Father, this is a hard call. In in many ways, I feel like it's a call in which you have called the original disciples to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. It's what the Apostle Peter says, where he says, who can... Who can obey such things? But as you said, Lord, as you said, with man, it is impossible, but with with you, all things are possible. And so, Father, we trust that you will preserve, strengthen, and enable this church to live out what you desire for it to live out, not because of sheer willpower, but because of the spirit who really dwells among this community right here. We thank you that the spirit is not dead, but it is, but he is alive and active, utilizing the word as a two-edged sword to convict, to transform, to enable us to live the way that the Apostle Paul, the way that you ultimately call us to live. And so Father, I, I pray for this high school ministry right here. I pray for um, our brothers and sisters who, themselves are broken over their sin. I pray for them. I thank you that in their brokenness, they have run to you. They have called upon you. They they have sought the help of uh, dear brothers and sisters, even here in this high school group, uh, in this high school ministry. And so Father, I pray that you would supply their every need, that you would meet them, that you would help them, that you grant them victory over their sin, that you would help them to resist the temptation of the world, the flesh, and the devil. But Father, I also pray for some of us here who are living in unrepentant sin, sin that has been left unaddressed. And Father, I pray that you bring it to light. Father, I pray that you would help these individuals come to see uh, not just the danger of their sin and how it puts them on the path of destruction, but that you would also help them to see the, the freedom of unburdening their sin, the freedom of coming into the light, the freedom of knowing that they can be forgiven by you, the freedom of a, a, a free conscience before you and others, the freedom of being put on the path of life rather than on the path of death, the, 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 the path of flourishing. I pray, I pray for these individuals that you would help them to, to rest their, uh, their, their, their fingers from and to, to unpry um, the clenched fingers over their sin. I pray that you'd help them I pray that you would help them to see the deceitfulness of their sins. And, and I pray that you would help them to do so through the community right here. I pray for our brothers and sisters who know them. I pray that there be people who will walk be walking alongside um, these individuals who are hiding their sin. And ultimately, Father, I pray for this high school ministry right here. I pray that as I step down, I pray that in my absence, that this high school ministry would be characterized by a culture of accountability, a culture whereby the students here trust one another, that they have the relational capital, that they have relational passports into each other's lives to ask honest questions, not because they're on a sin hunt, but because they actually care. And so Father, I pray by your spirit that you make this community such a community. And Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us, who went outside the camp for us. Father, we thank you that there is great hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that we can be cleansed of our sin and be granted robes of righteousness. Father, thank you for Jesus. We pray that you make even small group time profitable and fruitful. We thank you, Father. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.